0: For full, important safety information, visit juviterm.com.
1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: Good evening, children of the night. Just as one more final reminder, Drew Sebastini will become the host of Tales to Terrify starting next week. He has already lined up a few classic stories to commemorate the change. I put together a few thoughts that I'll record and post separately from this episode, but I've got a few things to share, and then we'll get on with our fiction as usual. Just last night, I watched the 1999 Japanese horror film, Audition. It has been on my list for a while, so it was nice to check it off of that list. Takashi Mike's film is one that, I think, is worth watching. However, the people that recommended it to me with such enthusiasm, I have to say it's not something that I think deserves a cult status. The plot of the movie, for those of you that haven't seen it, is that a widower, encouraged by his teenage son, decides to remarry. As a Westerner in 1999, I feel like a middle-aged man would just try to meet someone new. But in Japan, the 1999 middle-aged businessman instead partners up with a friend in the entertainment industry to audition 30 women for a show that may or may not have any legitimacy to it. Strangely, the one woman who our widower fixates on either sees through the ruse and or, because of her abuse as a child, well, things do not go well for our lovelorn widower. The first two acts of the movie are slow and don't make many overt promises of what will come, but the final act of the movie is where all of its punches are thrown. I do think that there are some choices about flashbacks, or perhaps drug-induced hallucinations that left me feeling a bit confused, and I think that there may be some things lost in translation as well. But overall, I enjoyed it. The American filmmaker Eli Roth credited this movie as an inspiration for making his movie Cabin Fever, which is a personal favorite of mine. Audition came out in 1999, which was a pretty solid year for the supernatural in movies. *Stigmata*. Lake Placid, Stir of Echoes, The Sixth Sense, The Blair Witch Project, and Love It or Hate It, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, End of Days. Last week, I did mention to you that I had wrapped up the novel Rosemary's Baby, which I enjoyed and would recommend. I've now started into Tom Piccarelli's Choir of Ill Children, which I can't believe I missed this one during the years I've been doing this show. I don't think I'll talk too much about it as I'm just now starting into it, but it's off to a really good start. I remarked to someone that if I was in the habit of having nightmares, I feel like a choir of ill children would be the book about my bad dreams. Let's get on to our fiction, Children of the Night. Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle Born in 1859, was a British writer best known for his detective fiction featuring the character Sherlock Holmes. Originally a physician, in 1887 he published A Study in Scarlet, the first of four novels about Holmes and Dr. Watson. In addition, Doyle wrote over 50 short stories featuring the famous detective. The Sherlock Holmes stories are generally considered milestones in the field of crime fiction. Doyle is also known for writing the fictional adventures of Professor Challenger. And for propagating the mystery of the Mary Celeste. He was a prolific writer whose other works include fantasy and science fiction stories, plays, romances, poetry, nonfiction, and historical novels. He died in 1930. Children of the night, listen with me to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's How It Happened.
3: She was a writing medium, and this is what she wrote. I can remember some things upon that evening most distinctly, and others are like some vague broken dreams. That is when it makes it so difficult to tell a connected story. I have no idea what it was that had taken me to London and brought me back so late. It just merges into all my other visits to London. But from the time that I got out and at the little country station, everything is extraordinarily clear. I can live it again every instant of it. I remember so well walking down the platform and looking at the illuminated clock at the end, which told me that it was half past eleven. I remember also my wondering whether I could get home before midnight. Then I remember the big motor with its glaring headlights and glittering of polished brass waiting for me outside. It was my new thirty-horsepower rover, which had only been delivered that day. I remember also asking Perkins, my chauffeur, how she had gone, and his saying that he thought she was excellent. "'I'll try her myself,' said I, and I climbed into the driver's seat. "'The gears are not the same,' said he. "'Perhaps, sir, I had better drive.' "'No, I should like to try her,' said I. "'And so we started on the five-mile drive for home. "'My old car had the gears, as they used to always be, in notches on a bar. "'In this car, you passed the gear lever through a gate to get on the higher ones. "'It was not difficult to master, and soon I thought I understood it. "'It was foolish, no doubt, to begin to learn a new system in the dark, "'but one often does foolish things.' "'and one has not always to pay the full price for them. "'I got along very well until I claimed to Claystone Hill. "'It's one of the worst hills in England, "'a mile and a half long and one in six in places "'with three fairly sharp curves. "'My park gate stands at the very foot of it "'upon the main London Road. "'We were just over the brow of the hill "'where the grade is the steepest when the trouble began. I had been on the top speed and wanted to get her on the free, but she stuck between gears, and I had to get her back on the top again. By this time she was going at a great rate, so I clapped on both brakes, and one after the other they gave way. I didn't mind so much when I felt my foot brake snap, but when I pulled all my weight on my side brake, and the lever clanged to its full limit without a catch, it brought a cold sweat out to me. By this time we were fairly tearing down the slope. The lights were brilliant, and I bought her round the first curve all right. Then we did the second one, though it was a close shave for the ditch. There was a mile of straight then, with the third curve beneath it, and after the gate of the park. If I could shoot into that harbor, all would be well, for the slope up to the house would bring her to a stand. Perkins behaved splendidly. I should like that to be known. He was perfectly cool and alert. I had thought at the very beginning of taking the bank, and he read my intention. I wouldn't do it, sir, he said. At this pace it must go over, and we should have it on top of us. Of course he was right. He got the electric switch and had it off, so we were in the free, but we were still running at a fearful pace. He laid his hands on the wheel. I'll keep her steady, said he. If you care to jump and chance it, We can never get round that curve. Better jump, sir. No, said I. I'll stick it out. You jump if you like. I'll stick with you, sir, said he. If it had been the old car, I should have jammed the gear lever into reverse and seen what would happen. I expect she would have stripped her gears or smashed up somehow, but it would have been a chance. As it was, I was helpless. Perkins tried to climb across, but you couldn't do it going at that pace. The wheels were whirling like a high wind and the big body creaking and groaning with the strain. But the lights were brilliant, and one could steer to an inch. I remember thinking that an awful yet majestic sight we should appear to anyone who met us. It was a narrow road, and we were just a great roaring golden death to anyone who came in our path. We got round the corner with one wheel three feet high upon the bank. I thought we were surely over, but after staggering for a moment she righted and darted onwards. That was the third corner and the last one. There was only the park gate now. It was facing us, but, as luck would have it, not facing us directly. It was about twenty yards to the left up the main road into which we ran. Perhaps I could have done it, "'but I expect that the steering gear had been jarred when we ran on the bank. "'The wheel did not turn easily. "'We shot out of the lane. "'I saw the open gate on the left. "'I whirled round my wheel with all the strength of my wrists. "'Perkins and I threw our bodies across, "'and then the next instant, going at fifty miles an hour, "'my right wheel struck full on the right-hand pillar of my own gate. "'I heard the crash. "'I was conscious of flying through the air.' And then, and then, when I became aware of my own existence once more, I was among some brushwood in the shadows of the oaks upon the large side of the drive. A man was standing beside me. I imagined at first that it was Perkins, but when I looked again, I saw that it was Stanley, a man who I had known at college some years before, and for whom I really had a genuine affection. There was always something peculiarly sympathetic to me in Stanley's personality, and I was proud to think that I had some similar influence upon him. At the precise moment I was surprised to see him, but I was like a man in a dream, giddy and shaken, and quite prepared to take things as I found them without questioning them. "'What a smash!' I said. "'Good Lord, what an awful smash!' He nodded his head, and even in the gloom I could see that he was smiling the gentle, wistful smile which I connected with him. I was quite unable to move. Indeed, I had not any desire to try to move, but my senses were exceedingly alert. I saw the wreck of the motor lit up by the moving lanterns. I saw the little group of people and heard the hushed voices. There were the lodgekeeper and his wife, and one or two more. They were taking no notice of me, but were very busy round the car. Then suddenly I heard a cry of pain. The weight is on him, lift it easily, cried a voice. "'It's only my leg,' said another one, which I recognized as Perkins. "'Where's the master?' he cried. "'Here I am,' I answered, but they did not seem to hear me. They were all bending over something which lay in front of the car.' Stanley lay his hand upon my shoulder, and his touch was inexpressibly soothing. I felt light and happy in spite of it all. No pain, of course, said he. None, said I. There never is, said he. And then suddenly a wave of amazement passed over me. Stanley! Stanley! Why, Stanley! Stanley! "'Has surely died of Antaric at Blumfontein in the Boer War.' "'Stanley!' I cried, and the word seemed to choke in my throat. "'Stanley, you are dead.' "'He looked at me with the same old gentle, wistful smile. "'So are you,' he answered.'
2: That was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's How It Happened, as read by Tales to Terrify's own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and an associate editor right here at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with husband, dog, and cat. Thank you, Seth.
0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Our second story of the night comes to us from Todd Keesling, the author of A Life Transparent, The Liminal Man, and the critically acclaimed novella The Final Reconciliation. His most recent release is a horror collection, Ugly Little Things, Collected Horrors, available now from Crystal Lake Publishing. He lives somewhere in the wilds of Pennsylvania with his family, where he is at work on his next novel, Children of the Night, it is time for Todd Kiesling's The Darkness Between Dead Stars, originally appearing in Ugly Little Things, Collected Horrors, from Crystal Lake Publishing, 2017.
1: Memorialized Commander Foster today, well, honorary commander, a posthumous and somewhat dubious rank, if you ask me. Maxwell Foster was never enlisted in any branch of the military, nor was he actually in command of anything, since his ship was fully automated. The corporate executives wanted to make his death look good for the cameras and newspapers and blogs, and hey, I can't say I blame them. I'd do the same thing in their position. I suppose that's one of the things they teach you in Public Relations 101. how will make the best out of a dire situation. And my God, Foster's situation was most certainly dire. How dire depends on who you ask. Offworld Incorporated's PR department already had a stranglehold on most forms of media. And I'm sure enough pockets were padded to effectively stall further inquiries by the White House appointed Foley Commission. Such collusion between corporate interests and the various branches of government comes as no surprise, really. But in this case, I find it particularly offensive. It's the flagrant disrespect, I think. Maxwell Foster was a civilian, just like you and me, the official. Story of what happened aboard the DSS in Foster's final hours is a slap in the face. Not only to the public, but to his memory. And I'm writing here to present another version of the truth. After playing my part in jettisoning Mr. Foster off this rock to his untimely demise, I believe that revealing the truth is the absolute least I can do. I realize this in no way absolves me of my sins, but if it at all casts doubt on the lies my former employer is feeding to the masses, then perhaps I can go to my grave with a clearer conscience. The official story of Maxwell Foster's demise aboard off-world's first deep-space shuttle, the DSS, is one of cold simplicity. A manual override of the ship's automation system, Odessa, was triggered, and the ship's airlock subsequently disengaged, resulting in an immediate depressurization event that caused Foster's death. What officials were willing to reveal about this mysterious override was buried in jargon that most civilians can barely grasp, and the ultimate synopsis of the matter boiled down to a simple lapse in judgment. Offworld, Inc. has a contingency plan for just about everything, even with a fully automated security blanket like the billion-dollar Odessa system. But when you are millions of kilometers from Earth and you open the door to a vacuum, there isn't much Mission Control can do about it. Maxwell Foster died twice that day. Once in the vacuum of space and again on the screens of Mission Control. Twenty minutes later, none of us were prepared for what we saw. Some of the images captured by the shuttle's onboard cameras were released to the public as part of the Foley Commission's official report. Those are the images you've already seen, the ones plastered across every screen on the planet. We've all seen the blown hatch and the eerie stillness of the aftermath with pieces of detritus floating forever in the shuttle's sterile spaces. There's the one of his toothbrush hovering out of focus before the camera. And then there's the famous photo of Maxwell's naked hand clutching the side of the airlock portal moments after he was sucked out, presumably holding on in one final attempt at saving himself. The media loved that one. Then again... The media loved everything about the project, didn't they? Offworld Inc. Seeking volunteer for one-way trip to Mars. Variations of that headline ran for at least a year, along with that disgusting slogan, Are You Earth's MVP? Yeah, that's the best our marketing team could do. I was one of the lucky few appointed to the so-called MVP committee. I helped plan and execute a nationwide hunt for a suitable candidate. In the interest of Offworld's profit margin, we restricted our focus within the country, screening thousands of candidates who all thought they wanted to be Offworld's MVP. Needless to say, our task was a daunting one. After nearly three years of screenings, we narrowed down our list of possible candidates to just three. Maxwell Foster was one of them. You probably remember the media circus around the MVP-3. That was all part of the plan. Behind closed doors, our superiors told us that part of the program's success hinged on public relations. We were, after all, selecting an ordinary citizen for what amounted to a long-term suicide mission. An average, ordinary, non-suicidal citizen. The irony of our task was not lost on us. That little detail proved to be the ultimate crux of the whole program. Which one of the candidates would be the least compelled to self-harm? Imogene Crosswell of New Hampshire, age 34, was disqualified on account of her history with substance abuse in her early 20s. She failed to disclose at the onset of our investigation, or else we might have overlooked the matter considering her decade of sobriety. Unfortunately, the prospect of sending a recovered addict into space aboard a ship stocked with a moderate supply of emergency painkillers didn't sit well with my cohorts. David Ruiz of Arizona, age 29, was disqualified on account of being a registered sex offender. Considering he met all other requirements, my peers argued that he would be an ideal candidate for expulsion from the planet based on his disposition toward children. Once our superiors learned of his record, however, Mr. Ruiz's candidacy was denied. Maxwell Foster of Arkansas, age 25, was a normal, healthy male of above-average intelligence with no history of violence, substance abuse, or sexual deviation. His parents were killed in a car accident when he was 19. Following their deaths, he learned to live on his own working in a garage by day and attending trade school at night. My first impression of him was less than hopeful. His psychiatric evaluation revealed a long-standing guilt over the death of his folks. This sort of result was a huge red flag, even in the face of all his favorable qualities, but compared to the other two, and in the interest of our timetable, our superiors urged us to clear him for duty. So after three years of screening, testing, and deliberation, Offworld Incorporated finally found their MVP. In the months following his selection, we subjected Maxwell to every possible degree of training we could muster. Physical training, safety drills, zero-gravity acclimation, preparation for atmospheric ascent. He took it all in stride. Maxwell was sharp like that. He could wrap his mind around just about anything you gave him. We even gave him a crash course on Odessa's override commands in the event of an emergency. That genius decision was made by Paul Pinsky, Offworld's former CEO, much to the chagrin of pretty much everyone involved in the project. A lot of emails circulated over that choice. Many of which made their way into the Foley Commission's final report on the tragedy, and for good reason. The whole point of the system was its ability to self-correct and negate the need for manual commands. The entire MVP initiative was built around this proprietary tech. Pinsky had effectively given Maxwell Foster the key. It's a failsafe for our failsafes, Pinsky wrote in one email. The odds that Mr. Foster will need to engage a manual override for any reason are a million to one. A billion, even. Months after the disaster, when the finer details of Maxwell Foster's final days were coming to light, Chief Justice David Foley, the Foley Commission's namesake, subpoenaed Mr. Pinsky to testify before a congressional committee. Of course, he never made it to that hearing. Paul blew his brains out an hour after he received the subpoena. They're still scraping him off the walls of his office. Poor bastard. The commission built their entire case around Paul Pinsky's lapse in judgment. I admit it was, in some ways, unfair to paint Mr. Pinsky as the villain in the whole affair. But at the end of the day, someone had to play that part. The public demanded answers to the most fundamental questions related to the tragedy. Why did it happen? And who was to blame? Pinsky took the spotlight for the latter. The former, however, is something that will be studied, speculated, and puzzled over for decades to come. Data transmitted from Odessa indicated that there were no anomalies prior to Foster's engagement of the system's manual override. Why, then, did he engage it? And why open the airlock? Why, indeed. Here's something they didn't disclose to the public. About a week before the depressurization event, Maxwell Foster sent a transmission to Mission Control, requesting a full scan of the shuttle's systems. His reasoning, he said, was due to a strange knocking heard from outside the hull of the DSS. Mission Control complied with the request, but with the caveat that he get more rest. Odessa reported all systems were functioning normally. Two days later, Foster sent another transmission. Knocking again. Please rescan. Louder this time. As before, all scans returned with normal results. When this was communicated back to Odessa, Foster responded with four words. It has a pattern. Let that sink in for a moment. Maxwell Foster was approximately 30 million kilometers from home and roughly halfway into his journey. His trajectory was calculated and plotted by a supercomputer and then rechecked by a team of geniuses. Short of there being an errant chunk of rock floating through the chaos of space, which would have done more to the shuttle than produce a simple tap on its hull, there was absolutely no reason for anything to be knocking on the outside of the ship. Foster's comment raised more than a few eyebrows. Naturally, everyone thought he was hearing things, that the knocking was, perhaps, his mind's response to a lack of stimuli, similar to the effect of a sensory deprivation chamber. To be honest, that seemed like as good an explanation as any, the executives in the company weren't taking any chances. They ordered constant monitoring through all means necessary. Until that point in the mission, DSS's onboard cameras were checked only once daily. Foster signed away his right to privacy the moment he accepted his place aboard the shuttle, but the folks in mission control still liked to stay out of his hair when possible. Simply put, watching a man live day to day on a space shuttle is pretty damn boring. After his troubling messages, privacy was a luxury he could no longer be afforded. Mission Control began monitoring the camera feed at regular hourly intervals. These were more than still images. I'm talking about full video and audio, yet another fact conveniently omitted from the Foley Commission's final report. If there truly was something knocking on the outside of the ship, we'd hear it. So we flipped a few switches and started listening. Most of those recordings were about as banal as you'd expect. We recorded Maxwell talking to himself, singing along, poorly, to the music he'd brought along for the trip. Occasionally we'd hear him snoring. Mostly, all we heard was the hum of air circulating through the shuttle. And then, there it was, a pattern of sounds. Knock, 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 knock. Tap, tap, tap. On repeat, at various speeds and pitches. One of our engineers spliced together the footage of multiple camera feeds from throughout the shuttle as a way of tracking the sound's progression. The result was a montage of knocks and taps running from outside one end of the shuttle to the other. I get goosebumps just thinking about that moment. All of us standing there around the computer terminal, listening to this cacophonous rattling of something that simply should not be. And yet it was right there. We could hear it with our own ears and not one of us could offer an explanation for its origins. The team at Offworld had conceived of every scenario imaginable in preparation for the worst, except this one. We were watching from the shore of a vast impartial ocean, and caught in its riptide was the most innocent sailor of all. God help us, we cast him off without a lifeboat. Looking back, I think that's the moment everything began to fall apart. Honest panic spread through the off-world offices. No one really knew how to deal with this discovery, but despite a general breakdown in communication from executive leadership, Mission Control continued to observe and report on Foster's daily toils. Maxwell stopped responding to our transmissions and further downloads from the A.V. feeds revealed that he wasn't just talking to himself, but responding to something coming from outside the ship. He would pull himself along the railings in the halls of the D.S.S., floating back and forth along the wall with the anxiety of a distressed animal, pausing every so often to press his ear against the surface. What followed was usually an outburst of some kind, Either in reply or in defiance. I can't hear you, he'd sometimes say. Other times he would scream. I won't! I can't! Impossible! Stop it! It isn't true! Our camera feeds revealed he'd cut himself deeply in those final days. One of the techs noticed dark globules hovering in front of one of the lenses. Subsequent footage revealed Maxwell raking his nails down his arms. Carving deep crimson canyons into his flesh. "'That discovery led to another moment of panic among our ranks, "'not just over the sight of Maxwell's self-mutilation, "'but our complete helplessness and inability to stop him from doing so. "'What could we do but watch this young man tear himself apart? "'Those final days followed the same pattern. There wasn't a single audio feed that didn't contain that goddamn noise. The knocking was bad enough. But over time, our recorders began picking up a kind of low, raspy gibberish, which none of our engineers could decipher. Together, the sounds formed a maddening song only Maxwell could understand. According to Odessa's latest data report, Maxwell hadn't slept in 72 hours, and it showed. The sickly, mutilated thing we saw on camera in those last active transmissions was a shadow of the young man I knew. I wasn't there when Odessa's transmission revealed the manual override had been triggered. After living at the office for the better part of a week, I'd finally allowed myself a short reprieve removing myself long enough to get some proper sleep. A lot of good that did me, though. I spent the time thinking about Maxwell, about the last conversation I had with him before his departure. The night before launch, I wandered into the office cafeteria to grab a bite to eat, and I found Maxwell sitting by himself at a corner table. He was staring out the window, toward the launch pad where the DSS and its carrier rocket were being prepped for their big day. Even from that distance, the rocket towered over all creation. A silent testament to man's determined curiosity. And sitting there, looking up at this pinnacle of modern ingenuity, was one brave soul who'd selflessly volunteered to lead his species toward the stars. After I'd secured a bag of chips from the vending machine, I approached him and asked if I could join him. Sure, he said, smiling. The kid never failed to muster a smile when he was here. It's a smile that haunts my dreams to this day. We sat in silence for a while, staring out toward the DSS. Finally, Maxwell turned to me and sighed. You think anything will happen? Like what? He shrugged. I don't know. There's a whole lot of empty space up there, and we don't know a whole lot about it. That's true, I said. That's why your voluntary service is so important. I guess, Maxwell said. But what if we're not meant to know it? What if we can't? I suppose we'll never know if we don't try. I put my hand on his shoulder. You'll be fine, Mr. Foster. You have an entire planet cheering for you. He smiled and wiped his eyes. I was so caught up in staring at the launch pad that I hadn't noticed he was crying. Maybe you're right. Maxwell rose from his seat and wished me a good evening, but before he could leave, I stopped him with a question of my own. Why did you really volunteer for this? Off the record, of course. His answer was almost immediate, spoken with that characteristic smile. Because I have to know. The conviction with which he uttered that statement gave me chills then. It still does. That was the last time I ever spoke to him. God, what I wouldn't give to go back there and tell that kid to walk away from the whole thing. I was asleep for maybe an hour when the call came through. The final AV transmission had just finished downloading when I arrived at the office, and I found my co-workers standing around the terminal in horrified silence. That image you all know from the Foley Commission's public disclosure? The grainy, close-up crop of Maxwell's hand clinging to the edge of the hole torn into the side of the shuttle was exactly that, a cropped-steel image taken from the video of the entire ordeal. Out of all the available data, Offworld's PR department chose that image because it would provide the world with closure. Let me cut through the bullshit. All A.V. feeds to the DSS were in high definition. The graininess was an effect added to the cropped image by Offworld's media department prior to submission to the Foley Commission. Here is what was withheld from the world. The last transmission begins with Maxwell Foster hovering before Odessa's master panel. His hair is disheveled, and his face and shirt are caked. dried blood. A pattern on his forehead suggests he tried carving symbols into his skin with his fingernails. His eyes are vacant and swollen. For a moment, he looks up into the camera, almost as if asking permission for what he is about to do. A beat later, his head jerks back, and he digs one blood-caked finger into his ear. I told you I would, he mutters before clenching his jaw and shrieking, I promised I would. When he removes his finger, fresh dollops of blood blossom outward from his ear in a sickly, spiraling pattern. He moves his hands to the master panel below, and from off-camera, we hear him inputting the manual override codes. Odessa's warning system announces the override is in effect. At this point... Maxwell looks up into the camera once again and smiles. One of his incisors is missing. A thick globe of blood tries to escape his lips, but he sucks it back into his mouth with a childish slurp. He mouths goodbye to the camera, offers a cursory wink, and leaves the frame. When we switch feeds to the camera opposite the airlock portal, Maxwell is hovering before the security panel adjacent to the door. Odessa announces activation of the airlock and begins a countdown to imminent depressurization. This is where things stop making sense. After the count of ten, the airlock blows open, revealing the infinite pit of space beyond. From that Stygian maw comes the source of the shuttle's impossible knocking. One by one, crawling along the rim of the portal like insects, Our hands, small bloated hands, their flesh flecked and peeling like wallpaper, all beckoning to Maxwell's floating, agonizing body. The young man is already suffering from ebolism and hypoxia, struggling against the fate he has wrought for himself, gasping for air that no longer exists, and waiting for him are those impossible hands, tapping and knocking along the rim of the portal. A total of fifteen seconds elapses following depressurization, during which... Maxwell endures one of the most painful deaths imaginable. In the final frames of the recording, the hands reach into the portal, clutch his body, and pull him from the vessel. The infamous closure shot of Maxwell's hand gripping the edge is nothing more than a matter of happenstance as his fingers drag along the portal's rim. The video looped on repeat for twenty minutes before anyone regained enough composure to stop it. Most of off-world staff resigned that day. I stuck around long enough to see through the commission's inquiry, hoping I wouldn't have to do what I'm doing now. As I mentioned, congressional pockets were lined with enough blood money to keep my testimony from seeing the light of day. Everything I've said here was stricken from the Commission's record. I'm not so naive as to believe that what I've revealed to you here won't be met with speculation and conjecture. I'm cognizant of the fact that I will be labeled as a conspiracy theorist. So be it. The AV footage, all 96 hours of it, recorded from the first sign of the knocking anomaly has been uploaded to the deep web for your perusal. It's there if you know where to look. And when you do, I encourage you to watch it. Form your own opinion. To this day, I still cannot reconcile the events as I witnessed them. Nor do I suspect I ever will. I can only speculate. Whenever I look skyward... I find myself contemplating Maxwell's words that night in the cafeteria. Perhaps what Maxwell Foster found waiting up there in the ravenous darkness between all those dead stars were answers to his questions. What if we aren't meant to know? What if we can't?
2: That was Todd Kiesling's The Darkness Between Dead Stars, as read by our own Drew Savastini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, and soon-to-be podcast host, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spins stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director, But by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify, as hosted by Drew Sebastini.
1: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.